DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. For over 20 years, Dr. Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education, including writing, editing, and teaching on a variety of topics related to church history, the papacy, the saints, and Catholic culture. He is the faculty chair at the Catholic Distance University, a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of over 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and the best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Kateri Tekakawitha. He also serves as a senior editor for the National Catholic Register and is a senior contributor to EWTN News. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Dr. Bunsen. Great to be with you, Chris. We are going to be talking about an extraordinary man who is a Dominican who isn't Thomas Aquinas. (laughs) That's absolutely true. And uh, someone to the surprise of many who study the, the lives of the Doctors of the Church and great Dominicans, great theologians, great saints, who was canonized only in 1931 uh, by Pope Pius XI at pretty much the same time that he was declared a doctor of the church. So there are many mysteries about Albert the Great or Albertus Magnus. uh, And if we're trying to get a handle on one word to describe him, it's harmony. And that's a word I think we're going to be hearing quite a bit in this episode because Albert was the, the great saint of harmony, of harmonizing the faith and reason, faith and science, and, and also harmonizing, bringing harmony to men and women, to the conflicts of his age, bringing harmony to everything that he examined and seeing in it the greater glory of God. He loved science, didn't he? He did. When we're thinking of Albert, we we can talk about his immense contributions to theology, to philosophy, and we're certainly going to discuss those. But he was also, in his age, one of the greatest scientists, uh, students of nature. The variety that he explored reminds me of another doctor of the church that we've talked about just recently, and that, of course, is uh, St. Hildegard of Bingen. Like Hildegard, uh, we have in Albert the Great someone whose knowledge was profoundly encyclopedic, but whose interests extended to mathematics, to astronomy, uh, even to areas like astrology, to uh, metaphysics, of course, but also to botany, to zoology. I mean, this is somebody who did, as we're going to touch briefly, I know, experiments, uh, for example, on ostriches uh, to check what was true and what was false about the myths of, of what animals eat. So he had a fascination with the natural world, but he saw the natural world as one step on a ladder that leads us inevitably uh, to God. And in that sense, he was more faithful to science than many scientists are today. Mm. Tell us about his background, if you would, Matthew. Where did he come from? Yeah, he was uh, born 
uh, in the castle at Lauingen in what is Schwabia, Germany, uh, along the Rhine. Uh, his father was a count, the Count of Bolstedt, who was uh, a fairly prominent figure in his region, uh, in, in Germany, part of that great medieval structure of uh, feudalism. And his father, I think, uh, like we often see with uh, great doctors of the church and also great saints, had a vision for his son that uh, may have countenanced the idea of his son entering the, the church to become a, a priest and in his father's view, probably later a bishop, an archbishop, and maybe even higher. But uh, the idea of his son entering the Dominicans uh, was rather shocking uh, to his father. And as we have seen with other saints, as I said, and we will certainly be seeing with Thomas Aquinas, uh, the, the family was opposed uh, to the idea of their son Albert or Albertus uh, entering the Dominicans. Now, how that happened, of course, is classic for the age. We had the recent establishment or creation of the order of preachers, the, the Dominicans by St. Dominic. And this mendicant order, this truly great order, began drawing to itself some of the greatest minds, young men, of the age. And, of course, uh, Albert was no exception. He studied at the University of Padua and was sort of vacillating a little bit about what he wanted to do with his life. It is said, and, and he himself talked about it, that he had an encounter or a vision with the Blessed Mother who not only convinced him to enter holy orders, to become a priest, but to open his heart to the possibility of something even more than that. And through the influence of some of the, the, the great Dominican leaders of the era, I'm thinking especially of John of Saxony, he was drawn directly to the Dominicans and uh, eventually entered, probably around 1223. The Dominican order, as you were just telling us, I mean, we have to appreciate that this was really very new, and for someone of affluence, it would have been something that... Uh, would be very close to renouncing almost all of that. Is that correct? Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I would imagine that to um, Albert's family, the only thing that might have been a little worse than entering the Dominicans would have been entering the Franciscans because mm -hmm. you had the, the, the Franciscan poverty. Uh, and, and yet uh, the Dominicans were, for their era, just as radical. Uh, the idea of giving up everything in his life uh, to become this mendicant, somebody who essentially is living a life of such profound austerity. But at the same time, Albert was drawn not just to that, that radical call of what the mendicants were proposing, but then to give his life completely to the pursuit of knowledge, of theology, but also philosophy of science. And that the choice that Albert made uh, had really profound consequences for the history and the, the intellectual life, but also the spiritual life of the church. Because he entered the Dominicans at exactly the time when new forms of knowledge were coming to the fore, were being reintroduced 
into Western Christian civilization. And one of those, of course, uh, is the, the, the whole philosophical system of Aristotle. And the timing was certainly providential. And Albert, I think, from the start took to this profound environment of prayer and learning uh, in a way that uh, it's difficult even for a modern mind to appreciate that natural gravitation of a great intellect toward this new way of living. You mentioned Aristotle. Talk to us about his teachings and how, had they not disappeared essentially for a period of time to reemerge during this time period? Yeah. Aristotle, of course, uh, arguably the greatest of the philosophers of the ancient world, of, of the Greek Hellenic civilization, studied literally every aspect of human experience, of human thought, of nature. He not only did that, though, he helped to systematize how we look at the world. He looked at human existence. He looked at human actions and ethics. Uh, he understood the ideals and ideas of, of the body and the soul. He wanted to understand how nature functioned, but also how nature was innately ordered. Now, Aristotle fell out of fashion and in a way was largely forgotten for a number of centuries. Why? Because so many of the texts relating to his writings were lost in, in the wake of the collapse of Roman imperial civilization. And then, as a result of what is so negatively talked about today, the Crusades, texts, manuscripts began appearing from the East, from Byzantium, the Byzantine Empire, and then also from that encounter between the, the Christian knights, between Christian civilization that had established a beachhead in the Holy Land because of the what were called the Latin states, the, the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. And then there were translations being made of Aristotle from the Arabic into the Latin, into the Greek. We think of brilliant Arabic philosophers such as Avicenna, Averroes, and others. These are figures who were immensely helpful in reintroducing Aristotle to the West, but he was still something of an oddity. But the, the great question that those texts and those manuscripts raised was how do we take this pagan philosopher, this knowledge from the ancient world, in much the same way that, that we did with Plato, but with Aristotle, we're talking about a broader, more systematic system, and apply it to Christian culture, to Christian thought. The question was, can that actually be done? And Albert took upon himself one of the key early roles of entering into this debate and actually arguing, yes, this can be done. It is possible to take pagan knowledge like this and reconcile it with Christian thought. Why? Because anything like true reason, logic, and a systematizing of 
the world around us, how we perceive the world around us, is still good. It's innately usable. And we have to distill it, we have to apply it in a way that is faithful to our understanding of, of God. And that's exactly what he said about doing. So he, here's that word, sought to harmonize what Aristotle had presented with authentic Catholic Christian thinking. In other words, he sought to take faith and reconcile it, harmonize it with reason, and then he sought to take science and also harmonize it with faith. So it was a huge undertaking. It was a very bold one for his time. We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Would you say, Matthew, that this particular paradigm in helping to break open the faith for others and to, to be able to evangelize, as it were, that Albert's methodology is not unlike St. Paul 
in that St. Paul went and he was in a culture, saw it, and could see the elements of God and how his work to bring it to a certain point and then help them to see even deeper into the mystery of that cultural experience. I mean, here we have Albert doing the same type of thing, but the paradigm of science. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and for Albert, there is this relationship between faith and science. They, they are not in opposition to each other. Why? Because through the study of nature, it is possible to come to a deeper, more profound understanding of the creator. And if we do that, then we are actually also setting ourselves on the path to understanding holiness and to becoming holier ourselves. In, in one of those wonderful uh, general audiences that, that Pope Benedict XVI used to talk about doctors of the church and great mystics and great saints, he noted that uh, St. Albert, as, as Pope Benedict put it, serenely fostered the study of the natural sciences and progress in knowledge of the micro and macrocosm, as he calls it, discovering the laws that are proper to the subject. Why? Because all of this contributes to fostering what, what Benedict calls the thirst for and love of God. So he makes note of the fact that scripture tells us of creation as of the first language through which God uh, in his supreme intelligence, reveals to us something of himself. But what we see in, in Albert the Great is that he then wanted to carry on his research. Why? Because he was inspired by this incredible creation. But he came at it from the standpoint of awe, of wonder, and also of gratitude that this is another way to appreciate God to use the power of reason uh, to give structure to reality, to help us to understand how nature and reality work. Why? Because they always focus us and point us in the direction to something deeper, exactly like St. Paul did, of grace building on nature. Well, here, uh, St. Albert was not afraid of Aristotle's philosophy. Here was a, a non-Christian pagan philosophy. And yet, he was able to interpret it in a way that we could use for the faith. And so, he answered that vital question. Are faith and reason in conflict with each other or not? And his answer was, no, they're not. They can never be. What would we be able to turn to as far as the contributions that he has provided the church in that concrete way that has elevated him in our hearts and our, our minds to become a doctor? Yeah, well, there, there are two ways of, of approaching this. The first is from the theological and the other from the philosophical. In his embrace of the scholastic method that uh, we've been actually talking about a little bit in some of our previous episodes, I think, for example, of, of uh, Anselm, we're beginning to appreciate how the doctors of the church, how the church was able to utilize faith and reason together. Albert took that one step further in the application of the, the, the incredible knowledge of Aristotle. 
And so what we're seeing is this logical progression of scholastic thought of greater and greater systematization, of greater and greater order put to the service of our understanding of God. It would reach its zenith under Albert's greatest student, Thomas Aquinas, and, and one of his greatest friends. The, the other area, though, that uh, we especially honor Albert for is providing that, here's that word again, harmony between theology and philosophy. In the, the basic assumptions leading up to Albert, philosophy was largely considered an inferior subject to theology. It was seen as little more than a, a sort of an adjunct or ancillary uh, topic that you would approach on the road to theology. Because of the influence of Aristotle and how readily and easily Aristotle's philosophical system of metaphysics, of philosophical ethics, of epistemology, the world, how we know it, how we know that we know it, all of these things were entirely valid in Albert's view and could be applied on their own as a way of understanding knowledge, human existence, and as a result, understanding God. So thanks to Albert, philosophy, uh, especially in the great tradition of Aristotle, was allowed to stand up, stand on its own, and become its own subject worthy of study. And so what we see after him, we see this in Thomas Aquinas, and then we see this in, in the subsequent history of Christian thought, that Christian philosophy has a valid place in the life of the church. We see that in a very practical way every day in the formation, for example, of seminarians. What are they required to do before they even begin studying theology? They have to take a number of courses in philosophy, in ethics, in metaphysics, in epistemology, in, the, in philosophy of the human person. All of these things that inform the mind about reality, but also, and here's where Albert gave another contribution in his development of logic, not just what you're thinking, not just what you're supposed to learn, but also to learn how to think, to think systematically and logically. And once that's in place, your ability to learn and to apply so many of the teachings of the church becomes much easier. I'd like to go back just briefly, Matthew, to that initial moment of extraordinary grace for Albert, where this great thinking man that everybody acknowledges I mean, to the point where we call him the great, Yeah, he has a mystical experience. He has an encounter with the Blessed Virgin Mary. Yeah, His prayer life cannot be ignored in this thinking man's life. I'm not trying to sound strange about this, but I mean, that is an aspect to our exploration of those things of the mind, that it has to be continually rooted in that prayer life. Absolutely. And, and there is uh, one of the keys to understanding 
why his contributions were so significant and the influence that he then had on Thomas Aquinas and countless other theologians in the centuries that followed. As you say, it began with this profound mystical experience with the Blessed Mother at a very important time of his life. One of the things that was a hallmark of the Dominican life was to combine the study of theology, the study in the case of Albert of philosophy of the natural world, but also to, to rest that, to harmonize that with a life dedicated exclusively to our Lord, to a life of prayer, of contemplatio, so that unlike so many scientists today, who reject any idea of faith, they put all of their gifts at the service of God, of the service of others, in order to achieve the higher goal, that there is something actually greater than ourselves, and the pursuit simply of knowledge. It is knowledge of something that is greater than we are, something that will lead to eternal life. It's a recognition of eternity within the seeming limitations of what we can see, taste, and feel. And Albert then, with his incredible number of experiments, uh, as, as we've been talking, here was somebody who was engaged in literally every field of knowledge, botany, geography, mineralogy, uh, alchemy, zoology, you name it, he, he was fascinated by it. Why? Because he saw God in everything. That doesn't mean he was any sort of a pantheist, but you could see the hand of God in the beauty of nature, in the, the power of law, in animals, in creation itself. And none of that is possible without faith. And as we were saying right at the start here, he understood that the path of knowledge must inevitably, if it's true to itself, lead to God. And therefore, if the pursuit of knowledge is bereft of or devoid of an authentic prayer life of the sacraments, of the Eucharist, it's not faithful to who we're supposed to be but it's also betraying what is the most important knowledge that we can ever seek and find. I wish we had more time to explore more of this man's life. He must have just been, I'd have to think, enthusiastic for him to be able to touch the lives of someone like a Thomas Aquinas, to inspire. I mean, there must have been a joy about him and a radiance. There was, um, and, and we can talk about this in, in our next episode on, on Albert. There is that joy, and that's one of those, those hallmarks of the early mendicant movement. Uh, the enthusiasm, the joy, the, the movement out uh, into the universities that we can talk a lot more about because uh, Albert became a trusted advisor to popes, he became one of the great defenders of scholasticism and the very presence of the mendicants within wider education. Uh, that's something that we need to discuss further 
the the opposition that they encountered uh, to the arrival of the mendicants in the great universities of the time tells us something a little bit about where we are today. And then we also have uh, the achievements of Albert that, that really are worth documenting in the areas of science, more about theology. And then on top of all of that was his extraordinary service to the church as a mediator, as a bishop, and as a preacher. So there's a lot more to talk about where Albert is concerned. And some of it is, is overshadowed uh, by the fact that uh, his student, Thomas Aquinas, um, became the great figure that he was. And yet, Albert played such a key role in Thomas's development uh, and, I, I dare say, in, in Thomas's own holiness. I look forward to uh, learning more and experiencing more of this great saint. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. And, and this is uh, one of those medieval saints, uh, as I said, canonized in 1931. And we, and we need to talk a little bit about that, too. Uh, Doctor of the Church, only in 1931. How did that happen? Because the more we study the life of, of Albert, the, of, of the great mysteries surrounding uh, the life of Albert that he himself studied, that itself is one of the greatest mysteries in the history of the Church. A cliffhanger. Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Looking forward to it. Take care, Chris. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. 